and from me as well, church family, Happy New Year. Please pray with me. Father, we know that we need your help this morning. This is your word. Help me to preach faithfully. Help us to respond faithfully. And um, Lord, even if, we, even if we forget things from this sermon, would you do a work in our hearts as we hear your word to change us and make us more like Jesus? In Jesus' name, amen. I have a New Year's wish for you this morning. It's that you would take courage in God. Take courage in God. Uh, one of my favorite stories as a kid was a story about taking courage. David, the famous king of Israel, isn't king yet. In fact, he and his small group of fighters are hiding in the back of a cave. Why? Because the current king and 3,000 warriors are coming to kill them. So it's a good thing that they have this cave. But then the unexpected happens. King Saul, the current king, has to go to the bathroom. And he decides to do it in this exact cave. David's men whisper to him, this is your chance. Kill him. But David refuses. Instead, he sneaks up to Saul, cuts off a part of his robe, waits for him to leave, and then, when Saul is still in shouting distance, he yells out and tells Saul what he's done. He wants Saul to know that he, David, is not bent on beating him. He's bent on serving God. Saul has a change of heart. He stops chasing David, at least for now, but here's what I now as an adult love about that story. David doesn't take courage in the cave. He takes courage in God. Church family, following Jesus might not make you a target for murder this year, but your life will get shaken up in 2022. And maybe it already has, and you will need to take courage. I want to urge you, to take courage in nothing less than the God that David took courage in. Not in circumstances, not by digging deep inside yourself, not anywhere else but in God. And our friend David is going to help us see how to do it this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 11. And uh, if you need a Bible, there should be some right in front of your chair. This is Psalm 11. We get to listen in as David practices taking courage in God in yet another dangerous situation. Psalm 11. You may be getting there right now. It's seven verses long. In verses 1 to 3, David's going to think out loud about some advice that he's gotten. And in verses 4 to 7, he combats that advice with truth about God. So, church family, would you please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. You can be seated. The psalm we just read, Psalm 11, gives us three ways to take courage. Take courage with your words, with your mind, and with your heart. Words, mind, heart. Way number one, take courage with your words. You must use your words to take courage in God. That's what this entire psalm is. David is using his words to take courage in God. But at the beginning of this psalm, you probably noticed this, it's not David's words that take center stage. It's the words of his friends. Starting midway down verse 1, flee like a bird to your mountain, his friends tell him. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are these friends saying? Uh, Two main things. First, flee. Fly away like a bird to a refuge where you can be safe, David. And then there's this word, behold. Look, David, focus on this. You must get away to safety because you are in the range of deadly fire. This is an assassination attempt, most likely, that we're looking at here. You're upright, David, and the wicked have you in their sights. They're hiding in the dark right now. Their bows are being bent to shoot at you. You're upright, but it's not helping you. Their arrows are on the string, so flee. That's the first thing. The second thing they say, look down in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's nothing you can do, David. What can you do? You're righteous, they're wicked. That means that they don't share your vision for what is good and right and true. You care about truth, they're going to lie about their allegiance to you. You care about honoring God with your life, but they're going to plot against you while you're praying. You care about stewarding what God has given you, but they're going to steal you blind and stab you in the back. So David, how can you possibly stand against enemies like this? How can you fight someone that you can't see and that hates God? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Flee, David. There's nothing you can do, David. That's what these voices are saying. Church family, I don't need to tell you that words are powerful. But have you thought much about why that is? Why words are powerful? Why do we say things to our relatives that then at Christmas time, when we see them again a couple years later, we wish we could take back? Why is it that 
someone can think about a departed loved one and not always tear up, but oftentimes when they verbalize their thoughts, when they speak with someone about that person, that's when the tears come. Why are words powerful? Why does the Bible in the book of Proverbs describe words as being so very powerful for good or bad? There is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Why do words have this type of power? A former pastor of mine named Colin Smith has helped me think about this. He says that when David hears these words of his friends, it's like they go into his ear and right into his soul. Words have power because they go right into our souls. That's why he says right at the beginning of this psalm in verse 11, not how can you say to me or my ears, or, or he says, how can you say to my soul? There's no filter, no barrier that you can put up between your ears and your heart. That's the type of advice that David has just heard. Words that went right to his soul. And these are words from friends, not enemies. But quoting H.L. Ellison, the love of your friends will often create your most subtle temptations. And that's what's happening here. So what's the effect of these words? They're arrows to David's soul that threaten to deflate any courage that he has left. But wait a second. Is this really that bad of advice, considering David's circumstances? I mean, just consider this. If this is really an assassination attempt, and if his friends aren't really telling David, stop following God, why would it be so bad for him to run away? They're just saying he needs to live to see another day, to regroup, to see better, to understand what the next steps are, to make level-headed decisions. And that's a fair point, isn't it? Isn't it sometimes wise to step back and to know your limits? Why is this bad advice? Why is it like an arrow to David's soul? At least two reasons. First, it's bad advice because it encourages David to take his eyes off of God and to put it on the danger that he's in. His friends have said, behold, look at, see the wicked. Of course, David should recognize when he's in danger, he should notice that, but it shouldn't take up his main focus. As God's chosen king, he needs his main focus to be on the God that he serves. And that leads us to the second reason. It's bad advice because it buys into a false assumption. The assumption that the kingdom of Israel rests on David, not on God. And David has to challenge that because God is the true king. David's just a servant. If David doesn't say anything here, if he lets this advice go unchallenged, if this assumption is left to fester, it will lead to spiritual disaster. It's going to be deadly if he doesn't address it. And so David must use his words like grappling hooks to take courage in God. You heard that right. Um, in case you didn't know, 
some superheroes use these things called grappling hooks. And they can shoot them out uh, with arrows from one skyscraper to another. And these hooks are attached to metal cables. And then they can zip line across them or, or climb up them. David has to shoot out words that cut past the advice of his friends and the threat of assassination and then dig deep like grappling hooks into solid truth. And so what does he say? The Lord is my refuge. And we must take courage the same way. We have to use our words to take courage. Wait, you say. This might be good for David. He's seen God save him from danger time and time again. But to talk to myself like this, really? To say, the Lord is my refuge when I'm struggling to even get out of bed in the morning because my body's giving out on me. To say, the Lord is my refuge when the person that I've intimately trusted betrays me. Really? To say, the Lord is my refuge when my boss questions my compassion or the level of my understanding because I hold to a Christian ethic about sexuality. To say, the Lord is my refuge when my job stability is questionable. To say, the Lord is my refuge when your plans for a new year are overshadowed by a pandemic. It does not feel natural to us always to use our words to take courage. So two thoughts about this. First, it's very natural, I think you'll agree with me, to talk to ourselves when we're scared. Some of us pep talk ourselves. Walking up into a job interview, all put together, and inside we're saying to ourselves, come on, you've got this. We talk to ourselves. Um, some of us talk down on ourselves. How in the world could I have forgotten my cell phone charger when I have a phone call with a client in three minutes and my battery is at 10%? How could I do that? And of course, we say worse things than that. Um, why do we use our words like that? Why do we talk to ourselves like that? We do it to take courage. When you think about it, even when we talk down to ourselves, we're often trying to take courage to be our harshest critic so that we can stand more firmly against the criticisms of others that we know will come. We use our words to take courage. It's actually a natural thing. So the real issue is not that it's unnatural to use our words to take courage. It's that it's unnatural for many of us to talk to ourselves about God, to talk about God to take courage. And that leads us to a second thought. Church, if you've trusted in Jesus, then David's refuge right now is your refuge. And David's God is your God. So that means that this self-talk is not just therapy where you're building yourself up, but it's you actually grabbing on to reality, to something real. And if that's true, then the question becomes, how often do the words you tell yourself when you're in trouble line up with that? And if you're like me, your answer is not very, not very often. The fault does not lie with God, with his ability to be a refuge. The fault lies with us, with our assumption 
that our lives rest mainly on what we can see. And when you use your words to say, the Lord is my refuge, we don't do that because it's natural, because it feels natural. We do it because we've come to believe that what feels most natural to us is usually not what is most true. That we cannot trust the assumption that our lives rest on what we can see. And David's going to challenge that assumption next. He's going to lead us to take courage, not just with our words, but with our minds. Way number two to take courage in God. Take courage with your mind. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's what his friends say. They assume that David's throne is the foundation of David's kingdom. And David says, stop. Your picture of reality is false. Not because it doesn't contain truth, but because it's incomplete. My throne might well be under attack, but it has never been the foundation of this kingdom. And this is emphatic here in the word order. The Lord, in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It's not in David's palace. The true throne of Israel is in heaven. And do you know what else? The true throne of Israel, it's not even in an earthly temple. It's in God's holy temple. That's the room that prophets have seen in visions and haven't even known what to say because they're overwhelmed by its glory. That's the place where powerful beings like angels, far more superior than we humans are in their wonder and glory, those angels fall down at the feet of this throne, in this throne room. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Do you know what cannot possibly shake the foundations of God's throne room? Arrows. Wicked people. COVID-19. Cancer. Depression. Big catastrophes in our families. Moral decay in our society. Economic instability. Small, chronic problems that stretch us thin like rubber bands. They can't shake the foundations of God's throne room. Do you know what else can't shake it? Our anger, our sexual sin, our addictions, our shame, and our doubt. They can shake our lives to the core, but they cannot touch the throne of the living God. But wait, you say, I see how these things can't touch the throne of God but they're certainly touching me. Why is the truth of an unshakable God a good truth for me when my life is shaken? Why set my mind on God if he's far above me, untouchable by all that troubles me? And now we've gotten to the heart. Your mind can acknowledge that God's throne is untouchable by all the chaos around you, but your heart needs to trust that this really is good news for you. And that's where David leads us next. Way number three to take courage. Take courage with your heart. Why is God's unshakable throne good news for you? It's because God sees. 
What? Yes, that's what it says. Let's read again. We're going to start at the end of verse 4. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So back to the end of verse 4. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. How does God seeing make his unshakable throne good news for us? Because God cares about what he sees. He cares deeply about what he sees. God is watching all the things that happened to you this year, and he cares deeply. He's not watching this world like a child watches an anthill. The ant's problems, the child could care less about. In fact, the child might be the problems. But the child is in it just for his own curiosity's sake. Not so with God. God's heart is in what he sees. Look at how God is uh, full of care in these next words. I'm just going to skim over some of these here. They're not describing someone who's disinterested. Beginning of verse 5, God's soul. The psalm started talking about David's soul, but now we're talking about God's soul. God's unchanging, totally perfect soul, the core of who he is, it is invested in what happens in the lives of the people that he created. And the second part of verse 5, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But there's more. Look at the, look at the beginning of verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Yes, God is far above his creation. Yes, he sits on an unshakable throne, but he sees, and he sees with the highest and deepest possible level of care. And that in itself is a reason to take courage, but it gets better. Because God sees with the deepest possible level of care, He cannot leave us the way we are. Because God sees us with the deepest possible level of care, he cannot leave us the way we are, and that is why he tests us. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Don't think school teacher, think blacksmith. Job, one of the Bible's most famous sufferers, says about God, I'm looking for God trying to make sense of why he would allow this pain in my life. I can't find him anywhere. And then he says this, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come out as gold. That's the type of testing in view right here. God is in total control of this world and everything that happens. He'll execute justice on the wicked. They'll be swept away like a hot desert wind sweeps up everything in its path. They will not stand. But God will not let the righteous stay where they are either. 
He will use painful and scary situations like the one that David is in right now to refine them. He will use painful and scary situations like the ones that you are going to face in 2022 to refine you, to test them in the same way that a blacksmith's fire tests gold. David's friends are afraid of the foundations being destroyed, but this actually might be the best thing that could happen to them. To quote Derek Kidner, the collapse of what is built on sand may be distressing, but it may also be a beginning. Church, what if God allows bad things to happen in your life this year, things that totally shake you up? What if he does it to help you more firmly build your life on him? But wait, you say, how could, how could a loving God operate like this? That's a fair point. How could a God who is perfectly loving let evil things happen just to get us to focus on him? Doesn't that seem selfish? Not if focusing on him is the best thing for us. C.S. Lewis points out that the more you love something, the less willing you'll be to let it stay the way that it is. The more you love something, the less willing you'll be to let imperfections remain. An artist will spend far more time tweaking and finessing a painting that she cares deeply about. But she'll never go back and work on a sketch that she doesn't care about that she's tossed aside. A dog owner will carefully moderate their dog's food intake, and the dog might not like that. They'll carefully moderate their exercise. Dog might not like that. They'll train the dog. The dog really won't like that. But it's not because they care less about the animal. It's because they know that there is a potential in that animal to be loved more than it will be loved when it's untrained. When it gets trained, it will be far more lovable because it will be able to uh, have health and to play and to interact. A loving friend will not allow their friend to persist in rudeness or pride or lust or any number of, of bad behaviors. They'll, uh, they'll take the time to have what may be a series of hard conversations that even put the friendship at risk because they want to see their friend become more lovable. They want to see their friend become the person that they have wrapped up in themselves, the potential that's there. Human love is not satisfied with letting imperfect things remain imperfect. And human love is just a tiny picture of God's love. God does seem unloving if our greatest good and our truest happiness is not to suffer. His testing of us, it seems unloving. But we are creatures whose greatest good and truest happiness is to know, obey, and enjoy our Creator. And so the Lord tests. Like a blacksmith, He refines the righteous 
by using hard things in our lives to turn us to him, to help us build on a solid foundation. You can take courage with your heart when you realize that an unshakable God sees you with the utmost care when your life is shaken and that he will not fail to use the shaking to refine you. But it's so hard in the midst of suffering to see this. And because of that, it's hard in the midst of suffering to take courage in God. Each of our lives will be shaken a bit differently in 2022. David had his fear-filled counselors. You may wake up with your own inner counselors telling you that you're in real danger of losing a relationship with a sibling or that your career as you know it is about to come to an end or that your spouse just can't understand you, or that your body will give out on you, or that you simply can't stand the moral decay of the culture around you. And you may feel like giving up and living distinctly as a follower of Jesus in each of those situations. And for me to say, church, take courage in God, that may sound just like another New Year's resolution that's going to get broken. Why? Because following Jesus takes courage that's not natural. Courage means calling and listening to the sibling while also not shying away from speaking the truth about Jesus in love. Being willing to be misunderstood or misrepresented or rejected. Courage means recognizing that your progress in your job is far less important than faithfully serving the Lord with your career. So, Choosing to practice Christ-like love toward your coworkers or boss by setting bitterness aside and forgiving, even when that means that you lose a competitive edge. Courage means that when you're discouraged, that your spouse can't possibly understand you, that you try to put your thoughts into words, even though that vulnerability can be embarrassing. Because for you, seeing Jesus work in your marriage is more important than defending or protecting your behavior. Courage means that when your body's reliability seems meager at best and you struggle to get out of bed in the morning, that you still offer your whole life, including that pain-filled body, to the one who created it. You've been crucified with Christ and so you belong to him in body and soul and life and death and so you seek to do what God has given you. And church family, courage means that when you cannot stand the moral decay of the culture around you, that you still persevere in obeying Jesus and spreading the good news about him, both publicly and privately, not giving in to grumpiness, not getting sidetracked by cynical conversations, but also not wavering in your Christian witness and doing it with joy even as the world around you seems to be falling apart. You cannot dig deep into yourself for this type of courage. You can't produce the courage that following Jesus calls for. You have to get it from outside of yourself. And so the point of this sermon has been take courage in God, but as I close... I want to let you know that this act of taking courage is not a task for you to do as much as it's a gift that you get to receive. 
Because on the night that he was about to die, Jesus, overwhelmed by the enemies that were surrounding him, he prayed. And you remember what he prayed? He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed that three times. And each time he did, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And then he got lifted up on the cross. And he drank down the wrath of God. Verse 6 of this psalm. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind was the portion of his cup. So that now all who trust in Jesus are declared by God to be righteous, not wicked. The consequences of our wickedness have been dealt with. If you're a Christian, you can be sure that you are righteous because God spoke that into existence. He declared you righteous because of what Jesus has done. And if you're righteous, you are like God. And look again at verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God has works for you to do this year. He loves righteous deeds. And he said that you're righteous. And look again at at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous. He cares so deeply for you that he's going to use every hard thing in your life, every situation that scares you to refine you, to make you more into the righteous person that he loves. You can believe that with all your heart. And how does God do the work in you? It's not by your grit. It's by his mercy. Through our Lord Jesus, his mercy, his compassion is new every morning. And he does not hold our sins against us. And so if you're a believer, take courage in this. This is not fiction. Forgiveness is real. Your sins are forgiven. And where is Jesus right now? He is in the holy temple. This is a huge reason for courage. Because Jesus experienced God's wrath against sin. He proved himself to be righteous. And now he stands for all who run to him for refuge. And where is he at? He is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And he's representing us. If you're here this morning and you have not run to Jesus for refuge, I'm pleading with you. Please do it. He gives righteousness freely to all who trust in him. Are there plenty of non-Christians with courage? Absolutely. But not a courage that will stand. True courage, courage in the scope of eternity, It's only available to people who have this type of righteousness. Righteousness in God's eyes. Righteousness that only comes from Jesus. And so now, church family, as you go into this new year, 2022, where you see plenty of problems, 
but where it's sometimes hard to see God, may you grab onto this final truth of Psalm 11. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Take courage in God's ability to be your refuge. Take courage in God's unshakable throne. Take courage in God's good work of testing. But most of all, take courage in God himself. He is righteous. He has made you righteous. And now you have communion with him. And you will see his face. Would you pray with me? Father, would you please help us to take what we've heard and to not just think on it, but to work it into our souls? You're the one who does that. And as we come to your table, would you help us to know you more, please? Thank you for this church family. Thank you that you have been faithful and that you don't change and that you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.